Let's pray. Lord, we're here this morning and so thankful to be here. And we're praising you for your provision in our lives. We want to honor you. We want to be blessed by your presence. And so now, Lord, we're praying, please send your spirit. We've sought you before this moment. We've worshiped you in song and giving. We've petitioned you. One more time, Lord, I'm asking as we open the word, please bless us. And may this be a journey of hope and encouragement. And if there's challenge and redirection in it, Lord, then please, may we be humble to let you do that too. We love you. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the third of a series entitled Risk and Redemption. Our focus is on the life of Daniel. Our first message recognized in the days of Daniel's upbringing that Jerusalem had been inundated with the spirit of paganism, worldliness, idolatry. Babylon had made it inside the city before Babylon surrounded the city. Last week we looked at Daniel chapter 1. And in the second service especially, I tried to set a framework for how to deal with issues of lifestyle. And whenever I talk about issues of lifestyle, there is a potential discomfort that grows into people. What I find is, is that bringing the cross into my daily life is the greatest of all challenges. It's a bit frightening. The good news is, is that however God is directing you, it is between you and God. So while the church has standards and the Bible has principles, these standards derived from these principles and these precepts are to protect us. According to those who understood the law best, the law was about liberty. And I don't know anybody that wants to be enslaved. But the greatest enslavement comes through the occupation of the mentalities of the world that cooperate with the sinful human nature and we become enslaved to our own ways of thinking and doing. The journey to liberty is a little bit frightening. It's a little bit scary because we find a measure of mixed comfort even in our dysfunction. So... When we looked last week at the lifestyle of Daniel, and I talk about dress and diet and entertainment, it always creates a measure of challenge and sometimes discomfort for people. But I want to reiterate as we go now into Daniel chapter 2, I want to reiterate that a lifestyle of Christ enthroned within as challenges it may be to leave behind appetites of the world, is a lifestyle of joy and freedom and liberty. I was talking with somebody the other day, explaining to them that both in marriage and in our relationship with Christ, to have nothing between is the most thrilling joy there is. When you have a beautiful, vibrant, vitalized walk with your spouse... And there's nothing between. And that love is flowing back and forth freely. It is exhilarating. There's lots of ordinary, of course, but there are definite dynamics of legitimate beauty of the highest order when there's nothing between. The same with God. I was talking with someone this week, and we talked about something just a bit delicate. And the person said to me, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me about that already. Well, I was certain that was the case before I brought it up, or I wouldn't have brought it up. This morning, I want you to know, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, the best course is to follow. The devil makes it look like it's full of unpleasantness and pain 
and discomfort. But the lifestyles of the remnant protect the experience with God. And I, I have to make sure we all understand this because almost every one of the first half of the chapters of the book of Daniel have a situation where somebody's life is on the line. And we're not going to go from our lives, you know, we're at the top of the consumer mountain. We're, you know, if there's a dog pile, Americans are on the top and everybody else is underneath. And it's not a great thing to be a part of. But the truth of the matter is we've been treated. There, there used to be a time, even in my lifetime, when you could not go in a store and just because you wanted to return it, you returned it. That's developed in my lifetime. Customer is king. The problem is we've all become customers. And we create an environment where nobody can tell us we're wrong. And it's exceptionally deadly to the experience of human relationships, family life, society, and certainly with God. And so when we come to church, we're coming to an experience where the Holy Spirit is invited, not just given permission, but invited to talk to us. And what I'm nicely telling you is the church has drifted into the hands and the arms of the world, and breaking off that relationship is probably just about as hard as when somebody allows their heart's affections to wander to someone else. And unfortunately, I've had more than my fair share of dealing with those things. But it's exceptionally painful. It's almost impossible. I don't want to paint a picture too dire. But when somebody has wandered from the proper bounds and bonds of affection with their spouse and they've bonded with somebody else, the idea of going back to their spouse, which at one point in time they were in love with, deeply looks like the worst thing that could ever happen to them. The church has wandered into the arms of the world. And the very fact that we're making this journey right now is of a divine providential timing. But getting out of the arms of the world isn't like the problem with getting out of the arms of the world isn't getting the arms of the world off you. It's getting you off the world. It's breaking the embrace. So it's not legalism to love Jesus and let him direct in the laws of freedom, life, and liberty. So I'm appealing to you this morning. If you did not listen to last week's sermon, listen to the second sermon. It's longer. But I took plenty of time at the front side of that sermon to enunciate how to walk with Christ without being a legalist. How to live a beautifully different life without being legalistic. And this is the call to Christianity. It's the call of Adventism. How are we going to do this? But the absence of doing it is the failure of our own spiritual journey. It is the abdication of our beautiful opportunity to be God's attention-getting device to the world. Now this week, risk and redemption, the shepherd and the shadow. I want to start by telling you you're going to walk in somebody's shadow. You're going to be walking in somebody's shadow. The Bible says in the Psalms, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the what? Shadow of death. I will fear no evil. This is the story of one who came to trust Jesus. His name was David. He was a man after God's own heart. When we look at the experience of God's people in the time of the end, the book of Daniel is our template. Daniel is walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Others are walking in the valley of the shadow of death. He's living under a despot. 
There is no liberty enshrined in law. It is the word of Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody knows that. That's why Ashpenaz and the commander of the eunuchs, Melzar, says, look, if you want this different diet and it doesn't work out, it could be my head. Because there's a despotic, autocratic, totalitarian leader who's in charge of the kingdom. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And we're going to look at this book, this chapter, through a slightly different lens than you're used to looking at it. Daniel, chapter 2. It's an amazing story of a dream. For those that are watching online or they're here and never heard the story before, it's a man at the peak of power, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the then known world. And he is in trouble because he believes in the spirit world. He understands there's the metaphysical, things beyond him. And he lays down one night with the court musicians and all of his attendants. He goes to sleep, probably being fanned in the warmth of a Babylonian night. And somewhere in the middle of the night, something happens that gets his attention. It's a message from God. Now, I want us all to understand God can talk to anybody he wants whenever he wants. Before the book of Daniel is done, this is a converted man. He's getting chapters of the excellency of Christ. He's getting encounters with the superiority of those whose spirit is filled and controlled by the spirit of heaven, of God, of the Holy Spirit. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He knows something significant has happened, but he doesn't know what it was, and he doesn't know what it means, and he's exceptionally troubled. It turns out that there is an immediate reaction from him. He's seen these Chaldeans, these astrologers. He's seen these men fed by the goodness of his oversight, taking, he suspects at times, advantage of him, and in this moment, he knows for sure. It turns out, going to the end of the chapter, we're going to go through the interpretation, and then we're going to look at from shepherd to shadow. Verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, so there was not a trace of them found." The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to take the time. I'm preaching out of a New American Standard Bible printed by the Lockman Foundation. It has nothing to do with Seventh-day Adventism. As a matter of fact, most Protestant denominations will accept the simple biblical interpretation that's found here. And above each of the next segments in my Bible are kingdom names. Verses 36 to 39, Babylon, the first kingdom. Verse or 338, verse 39, Medo-Persia and Greece, and verses 40 to 43, the kingdom of Rome. Then there's a divided kingdom beginning with verse 44. And what we find is that that stone that was cut out without hands represents God's kingdom, the subduing of all earthly kingdoms, and the mountain which represents kings and kingdoms represents God setting up his eternal throne. 
This is a simple, biblical, not even interpreted derivation of meaning from the Scriptures. And all of Christianity, should it so desire, can take this as the cornerstone for interpreting the rest of the book. This takes us from the day of Nebuchadnezzar down to the coming of Christ. And every one of the prophecies in this book that follow build on this simple narrative. We move from the simple to the complex. And so if you've never heard this message before, I want you to understand, according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, this book is for the time of the end. It was sealed. The message was not understood until the middle Well, the end of the 1700s and the early part of the 1800s, there was a great revival in God's church and amazing understanding began to develop surrounding the prophecies of this book. But the book is for the time of the end. The lifestyle dynamics, the experience of God's people, which make up about half of the book, Daniel and his friends, those also are for the time of the end. Last week as I was preaching I reminded all of you or explained to you for the first time perhaps that Daniel's unique, beautiful lifestyle was something he was practicing already in Jerusalem. And he comes with a deep spiritual commitment to God into the courts. Now, I've told you the dream. I've explained to you the story. We go from a head of gold, which represents Babylon, to chest and arms of silver, which represents the Medes and the Persians to a belly and thigh of bronze or brass, which represents Greece, to legs of iron, which represents Rome, to a divided Roman Empire in the feet of iron and clay. All of this is the progression, the general progression of salvation history, the nations that would affect the nation of God, the people of God. The story is told, but what is the workup? This is what matters to us. Now, why does it matter to us? I want you to understand, in Seventh-day Adventism, there tends to be a a broad spectrum of how we relate to the time of the end. There are lots of people who don't want to live during the time of the end. They're afraid. And then there are some who are afraid that are going to live during the time of the end, and they're going to do it on their own provision. So they're going to make this arrangement financially and that arrangement in a culinary uh, station and this domestic housing arrangement, etc., etc. I want you to know that God's end-time people are going to be the privileged generation of the entire human race. Not a very confident amen. The last generation will be peculiar, distinct, and defined throughout all eternity. They will walk as a people closer with Jesus than any other generation has ever walked. They will not be sustained by the arm of flesh. Their experience will not have the the foibles and the mistakes of the generation that came out of Egypt. But they, like those coming out of Egypt, will survive on one premise alone. And what is that premise? Why did God lead them out into the Sinai Peninsula? We know there were two reasons. The first one the Bible explains. They weren't ready to face the armies that they would have to face in such a short time. You can make it from Egypt to Canaan in two weeks or less. But they weren't ready to take on the elements of military might that they were going to face. But the real reason why God leads them out into the Sinai Peninsula is for you and me. 
God will make it abundantly evident that this journey could never, 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 never happen unless He was in their midst. You can't carry enough food for a journey through the desert. You can't find enough water. You can't be saved from the intense heat. You can't handle the cold, dry air at night. This is a journey where God Himself will be everything to His people in the midst of the absence of anything that looks like it could work. And as we approach the end of time, you need to understand you're going to walk in one shadow or another. You're then going to be abiding under the shadow of the Almighty, as was read in our Scripture, so that when you're in the shadow of death, you're not afraid. There'll be plagues around us. There'll be evil. There'll be intents to, to destroy But God's people, even though the devil is trying to cast a pall of fear over them, are going to be able to say, God is with me. I am not afraid. The issue is, how do we transfer from our cozy consumer lifestyles where we make complete provision for ourselves, sometimes at the expense of a dying world? Our bank accounts are big. Our second and third home is this and that. We've got enough cushion. We've followed Dave Ramsey to the T. The bottom line is, is that none of that is going to work to get you through those pearly gates. And God doesn't want anybody afraid because we're to be abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. That's imagery in Psalm 91 to the most holy place. We sang in our opening hymn this morning, A mighty fortress is what? Our God. Wherever we go and he goes with us, there's a mighty fortress around us. When God says to the angels, I'm commanding you, take care of them, you don't have to be afraid. But we're naturally afraid. We're so afraid. And the more we lean on ourselves and the less we know about God, the more afraid we get. And so the devil has tried to put Babylon in our heads, put an embrace of Babylon with our arms, our lifestyles, and our habits. And the one thing that we need as we walk forward into the close of time is this confidence. How we get it. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. Go back to Daniel chapter 2, the first part of the chapter, and let's notice some very, very important things. Daniel chapter 2. The second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's not even done with his training yet. And while Daniel's training may not have lasted three full years, it may be inclusively reckoned. So part of one year, a full year, and part of another... Daniel's still not even done with his training, but he's classed with the wise men. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call all the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell him his dream. So they came, and they stood before the king, and the king said to him, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we'll declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you can declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They said, Okay, something's off here. We're going to try this again. So they answered a second time and said, let the king tell us the dream and we'll declare the interpretation. The king said, I know for certain. He's had this nagging doubt in the back of his mind that they're charlatans and fakes. I know for certain 
that you're bargaining for time. Inasmuch as you've seen that the command from me is firm, I've not changed my mind, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans had a little bit of chutzpah, a little bit of confidence. They said, there's not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the king, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there's no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal men. And because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. God's people are of the noblest caliber. They're not wearing their religious I'm better than you badge around. They're not wearing a sense of superiority in spirit. They are humble. They can be humble because they're standing in the shadow of the Almighty and He makes up the difference. They're trusting with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he asked for the one thing the king doesn't want to give. And he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter, and Daniel went in and requested of the king. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Somehow on a journey from Jerusalem to Babylon, Daniel's spirit of such an excellent order, the love of God in his heart allows him to love even his captors and show them the proper honor that when he's finally stationed in Jerusalem and he says, he decided already in his head he's not going to eat that food, but the Bible says he asked for permission. This is a, a man of the highest order of social intelligence because he is informed and transformed by the presence of the living Christ. And it's the same way in chapter 1, he gets his petition granted. In chapter 2, he goes to the king and he asks for the one thing the king says he won't give him. Time to come up with a better scheme. Our Christianity must take us to the highest order of respectability or we are a zero cipher goose egg influence in a skeptical age. You can't joke about the same things. You can't be informed about the same worthless television shows. You can't spend your time filling your head with the same worthless statistics about pigskins and, and leather and soccer balls, etc. You can't, there's nothing wrong with knowing some of what I'm talking about, but you cannot be of the world and make the kind of impress that Daniel makes. At the same time, you cannot be just a cultural Adventist or Christian and make the same impress that Daniel makes. But I don't want you to miss this. Daniel has a death sentence written on him, and yet somehow there's a lingering impression from an earlier encounter. Daniel will go into the king himself which we don't know about what kind of permission he had, but we do know he has a direct audience with the king, and he asked for the one thing the king said the wise men before him couldn't have, more time. If we care to walk this close with Jesus, we can find ourselves as influencers even when we're not in charge. 
We must have the highest order of the living Christ in our lives so that his nobility is our nobility, so that his influence is our influence. And when that happens, God can move on the hearts of people, which sometimes is part of the solution. Nebuchadnezzar is not as bad as the wise men are. And we'll find out that Nebuchadnezzar, while he's full of himself and tremendously impatient, Nebuchadnezzar is a man who is susceptible to the impress of heaven. And how many people in our society at the current moment fit the same model of apparently full of themselves and into whatever they're doing, and yet they're not beyond the reach of God? But that's not my subject matter this morning. My subject matter is you and me. It's credibility. It's informational traction. Why would anybody want to listen to me? And it's not because I've got more information than the next guy. Conspiracy theories are all over the board. Inside tracks on what happened are all over the board. There is something about a Christian that is mainly shaped by the love of Christ, which allows one to be humble, and confident all at the same time, to show honor where honor is due, and yet to go and seek what nobody else could seek and it be granted. Is this the way we're living? You know, you have to let people talk to you. You have to gather for worship. You have to form the bonds that create the safety nets because we are shaped by the people we run with. But if you're never with the people sitting in these pews today except for this brief time that we're here together, you're missing out. Daniel's not such a super Christian that somewhere along the line that one of his friends said to him, hey Daniel, you might need to think about changing this because it's wounding your Christian witness. Or Daniel to one of his three friends, you know, guys, you need to think about this. But we have such fragile connections with each other that part of the shaping that God actually works through the communion of the saints is missing. And there are people taking the name of Seventh-day Adventist Christian walking through life who are actually misrepresenting God in person even though they have a message. And this is damaging to the salvation of souls and the advancement of the three angels' messages. Daniel and his friends have come to such a high order of bonding in Christ and bonding in each other. Now, I think something else you should know as we approach the end is that Daniel was caught up in other people's failures. You could have said he was being swept along towards destruction by a bunch of other people's failures. And you know, as you come to the end, you're going to be swept up in other people's mistakes and failures at times too. But there is no such thing as a victim when you walk with Jesus Christ. He has the power to take the problem that's been created for you by somebody else and deliver you. But if you walk afraid, you're going to walk in the wrong shadow. But if you walk in prayer and you walk in humility, you don't have to worry about other people's failures. God was not caught off guard by the circumstances surrounding Daniel. So now he's a wise man and he's on the way to death. But by God's grace, there's an intervention. A mighty fortress is his God. The brakes are put on the destruction dynamics in the, in the kingdom. And he has an audience with the king and it's granted. No circumstances can make you immune to persecution and suffering. Now I'm going to get a little bit outside of Daniel chapter 2 this morning. 
In Daniel chapter 1, they're nobodies. In Daniel chapter 2, they're on the road to becoming somebodies. In Daniel chapter 3, they are somebodies. And by the time we get down to the lines then, he's the somebody of somebodies. But I want to remember the words of Mordecai to Esther when he's talking to her and he says, remember, don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone and all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. I want you to understand that whether or not you're the key person for the Medo-Persian king, you're not beyond the reach of the evil design of the devil to try to take you out. But it doesn't matter because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. And the good news is that the prince Michael has stood up to protect his people. And you can drop him in a den if you want. And it can be full of ravenous lions. But when the angels are sent to encamp around you, you're okay. This morning, friends, you need to understand there are no circumstances that can make you immune to persecution and suffering. And some of the suffering, Jesus told us, was going to come at the hands of our own friends and family. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. Matthew chapter 10, verse 36. Another thing we need to take away from this chapter is that nothing they received in Babylon prepared them for this moment, with one exception, and that's chapter 1. They walk into Babylon, they don't get a Christian experience on the way into the lion's den, on the way into the experience with the furnace. They don't get the Christian experience as the ship is being battered on the rocks of the shore. Their walk with God has been the priority of their life. They were nonconformists in Jerusalem. They stood out like a sore thumb there, which is why they stood out beautifully, wonderfully indifferent. The inhabitants of Jerusalem had lost their relish for true godliness. So you can be sure Daniel and his friends were marginalized at home. But that same marginalization was turned around for the excellency of influence for God when they got to Babylon. Nothing in Babylon prepared them for this moment, with one exception. It was standing for what they believed in chapter 1, which was a little deal. And so here they go into the rest of the book. It's not intelligence. It's not strategy. It's not pre-planning. It's not networking. It's none of that. It's like God said through Zechariah. What did he say? Not by my, nor by power, but by my what? Spirit saith the Lord of hosts. This is an experience where God alone is going to have to be the one who breaks the bonds of potential future imminent destruction. When we look at the elements of the book of Daniel, you will not find one place where Daniel and his friends strategize their way into safety, security. Not one. As a matter of fact, what you'll find is that they are conspicuously different. Now, conspicuously is not an easy word for a congregation to say together. But I'd like for you in your mind right now to put beautiful with conspicuous and different and get yourself a little trilogy of words. String them together. Beautifully, conspicuously different. Now, if you're the kind of person that's not full of the Spirit and the love of Christ, you can't be that. Oh, you can be different, all right. You can pass out books about Sunday laws and everything else, and the wrong shadow can fall on somebody. A shadow of fear. We all have a sense that it's unraveling. Secular people have a sense that it's unraveling. One of you sent me an article from an Israeli website about a rabbi who's dialoguing with the Messiah. 
It sounds to me like spiritualism of the most twisted sort. I read the article. The article purports that rabbis are afraid to leave, Jerusalem, to leave Israel right now for fear the Messiah would show up. Whether it's the Pope's latest encyclical or whether it's the ugliness inside the political arena of our current climate, whether it's whether or not the pandemic's getting worse or getting better, all around us there are signs that are suggesting to intelligent people. I didn't say Christian people, although Christians are intelligent people. But intelligent people are looking around and saying, where is this thing headed? And we're not far away, as I mentioned last week, when spirits working miracles are going to break out on the scene of humanity and the modern empirical scientific method isn't going to know what to do because it's going to be real. It's going to defy everything they said. It's going to be tangible, audible, visible. And what I'm reminding you of on this journey is that while Babylon has been seeking to be enthroned in the sanctuary of your heart and mind, there is coming a day in which Babylon is going to break out with an iron fist and people will be afraid enough and demands will be made enough and the Constitution will be reversed enough to where everything we thought was a given won't be a given anymore. The kind of preparation that Daniel made for living in Babylon was a day-to-day preparation which was needed for the day. And the beautiful thing is, is that if you make the preparation for every day, you're on the journey to making the preparation for the day, for the hour, for the chapter, for the duress of a final crisis. But so many of us somehow think that whether it's retirement or education or portfolio or family, that somehow the main preparation has got to be an extra music lesson for our kids or an extra bank account for those days when I'm living on a limited income. The truth of the matter is, is that the one thing we all need is to be able to hear the voice of the Lord behind us saying, this is the way. Walk in it. He teaches us in the Word. If there's one thing we want to do is we want to develop a sense of the presence of God and walk in the shadow of the shepherd. And then no matter what we face, we're getting prepared. Do you really think that God is just going to let the boat float around on the ocean and smash into the rocks and then say, crawl up the rocks to the, the new promised land? God is actually allowing our lives to endure a few storms. He's actually calling us to run a few Uh, life-stretching laps on the race of life. He's actually calling us out of our comfort zone to give a little more money, give a little more time. Why? Because when he does that, he's actually giving us a sense that he was right there by us, that we heard him right, that we're doing the right thing. It's a chapter of faith written in the annals of our life so that when we come against the bigger things, it's like, okay, I've got chapter one. Now it's chapter two. And it doesn't matter who's drugged me into this problem. God's with me. But the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. I'm afraid that we've come to really believe what the world teaches, and that is that science knows best. And what you see is what you can believe. Sometimes we run our churches and we run our families like there was no God. And if there's no money, it's like we shouldn't do it. 
Fortunately, this church has not operated this way, and I want to affirm your decisions. I want to affirm your support of your leaders processing and your own prayerful journey. But the fact of the matter is, God is in the business of giving us circumstances that to the human eye don't look like they're going to work. But to the heart and to the eye of faith, he's calling us, follow me, walk in my shadow, and don't be afraid. Jesus calls us to a very simple faith. Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to give you the exclusion of what I believe is the only preparation that we're directed to make physically for the chapters in front of us. The only real physical preparation we're to make. And that is, and I'm open to having somebody show me more after the sermon. I'm learning from you. But the only real physical preparation I can see that we're to make for what's coming is to actually be prepared, if not acting now, to not be living in the big cities. Now, there are some who probably need to be in the big cities right now, so that's the group that needs to be prepared to leave. But there will be a period of time in which not being in the big cities will allow us to be out from underneath the watchful eye of a citizenry turned Gestapo. Those are ugly words. But a citizenry that has been trained to do what all totalitarian regimes have done in the past, and that is weaponize neighbor against neighbor. There is a brief period of time before probation closes when our liberty to move about and sustain ourselves to give the message of Revelation 18, the fourth angel's message that lightens the world, that's the only period of time in which it appears that we really get to make any preparation for. And when probation closes, that's not going to do any good. Because the animus of evil is going to be so intensely focused on us that only one thing is going to take us through, and that will be the shadow of the shepherd. We'll be living in the wing, under the wings of the Most High God. He will have brought us into by journey, day by day. That's why, friends, it's important that when the Holy Spirit says to you, you need to be at that meeting, but you don't have a habit of being at that meeting. Do you really think that the church is just trying to self-perpetuate itself? Or does the church actually have a reason to exist? And that reason to exist is to strengthen the spirituality of its own members to reach those that have not yet heard of a God you could actually love. When God says, yeah, I want you to give that money. When God says, I want you to dedicate a commitment to that responsibility. This is all the preparation because we will be following Jesus who said, David wrote on his behalf, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What I learned today is the chapter that strengthens the spiritual and sinew for the future. All right, I'm running out of time. What is the solution? How does this thing get resolved? Does Daniel sit down with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? He said, all right, guys, let's take our best theological training from the University of Jerusalem. Let's figure this out. It's preposterous. The solution to the problem is a divinely communicated dream, dream number two. 
God gets through. And what does James say? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth what? Much. If there's one thing we want to learn to do is to pray. We want to learn how real the God who listens to our prayers is. But I had to tell somebody the other day, one of my own family members, if you want to know what God's will is, you've got to have no will of your own. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have pleasures, but don't worry about that. God says that those who trust in Him, He gives them the desires of His heart. But we don't even know what the desires of our heart are sometimes. We just know we don't want to let go of this little desire, and what looks like the future is no desire at all. And yet I want to tell you, the exhilaration of freedom and confidence in Christ is way better than the passing pleasures of this world. I don't know if you notice in Psalm 91, I don't have the time to do it, but God says, I will set you on high. But notice what God had to write to his own people in Jeremiah 49. Actually, I think he wrote this to the Babylonians, but it applies. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the top of the pile, and he was for a little while, but this is what Jeremiah 49, 16 says. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the heights of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. There's no high spot we can create, friends. There's no human security that's going to make it work. As a matter of fact, the more you try to make your future secure, the less insecure your now is. God is actually looking to write chapters of confidence into our life. How does Joel tell us? Joel the prophet, writing probably a hundred years before this experience, says in the last days, your young men will see dreams and visions. Daniel's experience is a direct answer to that prophecy. Peter said it was answered that way on the day of Pentecost. And you know what? For the church to come to life... The same thing's going to have to happen now. But it'll have to happen in my heart individually, in your heart individually, before it happens to us corporately. Now, I'm holding a device I just got in the mail the other day. And I want to make my final point with this. It's from a major cell carrier. And it does a lot of things. I can plug a landline phone into the back of it and talk on a phone that isn't always trying to connect to a cell tower. I can also take an internet signal from it. They designed it pretty well because there's a battery in it, so if the power goes off, as long as the cell tower is still working, I've got everything I need. I just have one problem. The signal to my house is not nearly as strong as the signal right here. Why? Because this signal is coming off the WAUS tower. So it just turns out, as I flip this thing around, you can see all these little green lights. I've got four bars here. That's good. As a matter of fact, that's the best they're going to be able to give me. But where I live, there's lots of trees, and it's not right next to the tower. And so when I got this thing the other night and the battery charged up, if you would have seen me walking around my house, this is what I was doing. I'm walking around looking at the little green lights, and I get it over here, and it goes down to one. And I get it over here, and it goes down to two, or up to two. I set it down on the counter where there's actually a place to put the phones, and it's down at one. And so I'm walking outside. If I go outside on the deck and hold it on the back deck, it goes up to three. If I walk out the front porch, no good because the cell tower is on the other side of the house. They tell me when the leaves fall off the trees, the signal will be better. (laughs) So at least half of the year, I'll have good internet. I don't know how this box was made. 
I know there's a circuit board in there and everything else. I'm not an engineer. But I do know this. I want a good signal. These cell phones we're carrying around, the social media, constant access to everything you want when you want it. There's a devil out there trying to scramble your ability to hear the voice, the reassuring voice of God. But the same God that reassures you will wrestle with you when he needs to. And he'll tell you you're headed down the wrong road. You can scramble the signal if you want. But I'll tell you one of the things I'm going to buy in the next week or two. I'm going to buy a signal booster. Every day you get a chance to buy without money and without price an encounter with God that's a signal booster. There's no future for human preparation for what's coming. Zero. But if you walk with God and you stand under the shadow of the Almighty day by day, oh, He's going to inconvenience your life because you think you've got to get this done. You think that's got to happen. And what gets squeezed out? Charging the battery and enhancing the signal. If there's one thing we need, friend, as we move towards the end, we need a God who's Lord and Savior. This church will come back to life. There's going to be a group that goes through. I want to see Jesus face to face. He knows I'm a scaredy cat. He does. I'm just like you. You get me far enough out of my security zone, and I start getting stressed. But I've watched progressively God stretch my security zone. And I want to be in the shadow day by day of the Almighty so that I have no fear of the terror that stalks at night or midday. Can you say amen? Amen. I'm calling you, friends, to the prayer meeting. That's how this was solved. I'm calling you to the prayer meeting. As I told you last week, that's the one meeting that will go through all the way to the end. I didn't say there won't be church, but it won't be like this. But I'm calling you to the prayer meeting. The one you have with Jesus in the morning. And if you do it like Daniel and David, you did it three times a day. I'm calling you to the prayer meeting that's just you and God. And I'm calling you to the prayer meeting that's with me too. And if you're in a small group, there's your prayer meeting. If you pray, don't be afraid. With Jesus in the vessel, you can what? You can smile at the storm. Friends, when Daniel's an old man and he, know, he knows that the Medo-Persian princes have him in the vice, he does what he's always done. He opens the window He kneels down and he looks to Jerusalem. And wouldn't you love to have heard that prayer? Oh, Lord, I don't know if this is the end or not. I love you. I trust you. But I'm going in the den. Would you please go with me? Listen, friends. How many kings and how many kingdoms were affected by this man
we will not know until we get to heaven. But standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. I'm giving a call this morning to reconstitute Daniel's band. I'm calling you to a simple, obedient trust in Jesus. Don't be afraid. You'll always have what you need, even if you suffer along the way. Even if all that you need is the ability to stare death in the eyes and say, I'm not afraid. Death has lost its fear over me. Let's make that journey. Doesn't matter what other people do. Be beautifully, conspicuously different for Jesus. Now, I've once again gone through our closing song, which I don't like to do. But I invite you to stand and we're going to pray together and go into the rest of the Sabbath knowing that Jesus is watching out for his own. Lord, there's a lot of parents and grandparents in this audience today. And once they held that little baby in their arms, it's all they could think about all the time. It's not that they couldn't love you and love their spouse. It's just that now you turn their heart to caring. Forgive us, Lord, when somehow we think we're better parents than you. Forgive us when we arrange our own way, do our own thing, and along the way wound our confidence in you and all the while thinking we're creating the security. Yes, Lord, we know the Scriptures say that the wise man sees trouble coming and hides himself. So there is an element of preparation, Lord. But the hiding that you've called us to today is the same hiding that Corey Temboom wrote about in the book The Hiding Place, which is under the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Drive away our fear. May your perfect love cast it out. Thank you, Lord, for saving Daniel and showing us how you're going to save us too. And we put our lives in your hands again. May we look forward to Jesus coming, not be afraid of what comes before he comes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Now, this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.